Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, countries around the world have been struggling to upgrade their testing capacity. Complicating the testing landscape is the development of a separate kind of test, known as serological tests, which test for the presence of COVID-19 antibodies within our system, as opposed to testing for the presence of the disease itself. This technology offers an important tool for returning our societies to something approaching normal functionality. And it's also the subject of a timely new article in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, by managing editor Jennifer Abbasi. In her April 17th JAMA article entitled The Promise and Peril of Antibody Testing for COVID-19, Abbasi steps readers through the different kinds of testing technology being developed and discusses how they can be used to fight the COVID-19 pandemic and perhaps even help save the lives of those who are still severely afflicted with the disease. On Wednesday, Ms. Abbasi spoke to me over Skype from her home in Chicago. Here are excerpts from that conversation. When we talk about antibody testing, we're not talking about testing for the disease itself. Is that correct? That's correct. Antibody testing is looking for the immune response in the body to the disease. So it's different from the type of test that's referred to as a PCR test, which is looking for active virus in the body. And it does that by looking for the viral genetic material. Antibody testing is looking in the blood to see if you have developed an immune response to the virus. At what point in the cycle of the disease does a person start to test positive for antibodies? Right. So that's a really important question. There's different antibodies that these tests look for. The most common are IgM and IgG. And IgM tends to show up earlier in the course of an infection, and IgG tends to show up later. And based on scientists I spoke with for my story, people can start to show antibodies within as early as three days of infection. But most people don't show antibodies or don't develop antibodies until well over a week, almost approaching two weeks, according to an expert I spoke with from the Mayo Clinic. And that was based on um, studies that they've done in-house there. So let's talk a little bit about this case study, I guess you could call it, in San Miguel County, California. This was, I'm not sure if you could call it surveillance testing, but screening, voluntary screening was offered to the area's 8,000 residents over two weeks to determine how many of them had COVID-19 antibodies in their system. Could you describe the results of that case study and if the results were a surprise to the people conducting it? So in the first two days of testing, which happened on March 26th and March 27th, just eight people out of 986 people who were tested were positive for antibodies. And another 23 were borderline, which suggested that they were starting to develop antibodies. Again, this was late March. This was pretty early on. And so the county was planning on retesting everybody two weeks later. And this was, just to clarify, this was a voluntary test that was offered to, I think, everybody who is over eight years old in the county. 
theoretically, if you were testing the same people using the so-called PCR tests, which look for the molecular signature of the virus itself, if you tested people for that and also gave them the antibody test, is it true that the antibody test results, the positives, would lag the PCR tests? Right. So say you give a person with symptoms a PCR test and it turns up positive. And if you give them an antibody test that same day, they might not show the antibodies, even though they are positive for the infection. And that's because the body takes time to develop the antibodies. One thing that interested me about the San Miguel County case study is that it seemed to have been made possible by United Biomedical Inc. I believe that's the manufacturer. I remember reading an article, a large article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about all the bureaucratic hurdles that were hampering the rollout of tests for COVID-19. Has there been a lot of FDA red tape about these antibody tests? The FDA did something a little bit different with antibody tests as opposed to the PCR tests or the regular COVID-19 tests. So what they did is they're allowing test manufacturers to make the tests available without the same level of scrutiny. So what we normally expect for an FDA quote-unquote approved test is that it's gone through a, a tremendous amount of scrutiny, both by the manufacturer and by the FDA. But for these antibody tests, the FDA has said that manufacturers can make the tests available pretty much just based on the manufacturers saying that the tests have been validated in-house. And the tests also need to come with some disclaimers about what they can and can't be used for and how they can be used. And they need to just report that to the FDA, and then they can go ahead and make those tests available. Some tests have what's called emergency use authorization. So those have gone through a bit more scrutiny, which means that you can have a little bit more confidence in those tests. And right now, those there are eight of those available, but there are many, many, many more that do not have emergency use authorization, so have undergone very little scrutiny. Another very basic question, I myself am ignorant of how these tests take place. I'm speaking to you from Canada, where we've had some of the same maddening problems with testing more generally. I haven't been tested. I don't know how the test works. The test for PCR and the test for antibodies, is this a non-invasive test that simply involves spitting on a piece of glass or something like that? Yeah. So the PCR tests are either nasal swabs or throat swabs. So it's basically like a, a big Q-tip that goes up the nose or in the back of the throat. And then the antibody tests are either blood draws or finger pricks. In the case of most viruses, once you are hit with the virus once, if you survive, you either are immune to it, or if you get it again, it's typically in a less virulent form. How much do we know about whether somebody who has antibodies in their system for COVID-19, whether they can be reinfected? That is a really, really important question. And the fact is that we really don't know at all. So right now, that's a major open question in an area, a big area of research. So the assumption is from people I spoke with for my story, is that if you have been infected, that you will have some immunity, at least for some amount of time. But that doesn't tell you a whole lot. And so we need research to show us that indeed, you cannot be reinfected and 
for how long. And that is uh, really important when it comes to the idea of using antibody tests to allow people to sort of re-enter society. And sometimes this conversation has gone into the realm of like science fiction, where your ability to access certain jobs is based on the genetic signature of your antibodies. Mm -hmm. uh, the movie Gattaca comes to mind. I'm not sure if you remember that one. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of you know, the content of your blood being your passport to being able to re-enter the economy. Is there some basis for imagining that becoming a frontline healthcare worker in a hospital, that we're going to use these tests to say, okay, well, you have the antibodies, so you're going to be on the front line screening people for COVID-19? Is, is that a possibility? Absolutely. I think, yes, it does conjure up ideas of science fiction. And it does sound very bizarre in a free society such as ours. But there are already places that are doing this, that are screening healthcare workers for antibodies. For example, I just confirmed today that the Mount Sinai Health System in New York is screening healthcare workers for antibodies now. Exactly how they're using those results, I'm not sure of. But they are not the only place that's doing this. It's widely believed that antibody status will help to inform path towards reopening society. Now, whether that's through simply knowing, well, this percentage of the population has been infected and, and therefore is probably immune for some time, or whether it's on a more individual level remains to be seen. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. Your article is written in a scientific form. It's not a human interest article. But anecdotally, based on your reporting, do you have any sense of what the emotional reaction is from people who were asymptomatic and then were told that they have these antibodies? Are they relieved to know that they won't get the disease or are at less risk of getting the disease? Or are they anxious that they had the disease and they didn't know it maybe and might have infected others? You know, I don't know. I don't know personally anybody that that 
where that scenario has played out. But I certainly know anecdotally that everybody I know wants to know that they already had that, <laughs> that they have the antibodies on a personal level. I'd love to know that. And I'm sure you would too, even though we don't know for sure what that means there. I think there is some comfort in knowing, oh, I've already had this. I probably can't get it for a while. I can maybe just relax a little bit about it um, psychologically, but we should not be relaxing yet in terms of our social distancing measures based on antibody results. It is very strange from a cultural point of view to have this test that you hope in a weird way is going to be positive. Mm -hmm. I think most of us go through life as medical patients, you know, take your pick, a cancer or venereal disease or anything like that. You get tested, <laughs> you want a negative result. This sort of flips that on its head. It, culturally, it's a weird thing. Are you aware of any public health precedents where people are rooting in some way at least to get a positive result? I guess you could think of it sort of like chickenpox. And that's not to say um, we should be having COVID-19 parties or anything like that. But I, I do think that the, there's some connection to be drawn with the idea of hoping you have already had it so that you aren't vulnerable to getting it again. There is one strong parallel between chickenpox and COVID-19, which is that Chickenpox is a much more serious disease for people who get it when they're older as compared to when they're younger. It is conceivable that eventually COVID-19 will be the kind of disease that we would want people to be exposed to when they're younger, maybe in the presence of some kind of vaccine to make sure they don't get it when they're older. Again, this is conjecture, but have you spoken to anybody who might foresee a future like that? No, nobody's talked about that. I think I think it's a reasonable question to ask, but I think it's still so early. I don't know how far ahead. I think we're not quite there yet. Again, this is conjecture on my part. To, you know, don't host any COVID-19 parties for your kids. There is one extremely hopeful section you have here in your article. You talk about therapeutic applications. Mm hmm. Now, this is interesting because the last few weeks, from a media point of view, and I guess even from a political point of view in these odd times we live in, there's been this huge controversy about largely untested antiviral medications being used to suppress COVID-19. But you raise the idea of plasma from people who test positive for COVID-19 antibodies that being recovered from those patients and then transfused to gravely ill patients. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we're manufacturing the antiviral within our own bodies, in the case of people who have the antibodies. How advanced are those tests that have been done with that technique? So what you're referring to is called convalescent plasma. So yes, it's the idea that you would take antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients and transfuse them into gravely ill patients, critically ill patients, in the hopes that that immune response would boost their immune systems and help them survive. Now, this is something that is being looked at by many, many research groups, but it is absolutely in an investigational experimental stage. There are some positive signs JAMA published a case study, I think, of five patients in China where it did appear to be an effective therapeutic, but that's not a randomized controlled trial. We need a lot more research to show that it works, but it is being experimented with all over the country and all over the world. So it's something that a lot of scientists are excited about. You also specify that in terms of testing for COVID-19 antibodies, 
there are at least two different approaches. One, I believe you describe with the acronym E-L-I-S-A, and then there's another one. Could you describe the difference between those two tests? I'm not a scientist, but from my reporting, what I know is that there's basically two types of tests, and this is not just for COVID-19 antibody testing. This is for serological tests. One is called an ELISA, and one is called a lateral flow assay. The most important difference might be that a lateral flow assay basically gives you a yes or no response. It doesn't tell you what level of antibodies, which are referred to as titers, a person has, whereas an ELISA does give that quantitative information. I think for a lot of people, maybe even for a lot of public health officials, they dream of tests as being so common and so widespread and so available that in some cases, I think in Britain a few weeks ago, they were talking about even the possibility of selling COVID-19 tests on Amazon. Right. And it would be as simple as a pregnancy test. I haven't heard a lot about the Amazon model since Boris Johnson talked about it a few weeks ago. This was before he went into the hospital. Is there a possibility that these antibody tests, as distinct from the PCR tests, that it will be the kind of thing that we can order online and do at home? I think it's totally possible. Right now, at-home tests are already being developed. And in fact, the NIH is running a study, or they've announced that they're going to do a study of 10,000 people to look for antibodies in their blood for people who are local, so who are in the D.C. area, the Baltimore area. So for people who are local to NIH, they will go in and get the blood test there. But for the rest of the people around the country, the NIH will be mailing them kits. So this is something that's already being developed. And now whether that's going to become available commercially, something that you would buy on Amazon, that I can't tell you, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Is there any fear that you're going to get false negatives or positives, as apparently you sometimes do with the PCR tests for the virus itself? So yeah, there are concerns about false negatives and false positives with both the lateral flow assays and the ELISA tests. Just in general, there are concerns with all of these tests, 
because they are being developed so quickly and are being made available so quickly that they may not be as accurate as we'd like them to be. And so with the antibody tests, there are concerns that if you take an antibody test too early, you won't have developed the antibodies yet, even if you're infected. And so you might get a false negative. And therefore, you might think that you haven't been infected yet when you actually have been, and you might then expose other people to the virus, even though you are pre-symptomatic. A lot of people who are spreading the infection are doing it in a phase where they're pre-symptomatic, so before they develop symptoms. And so that's the danger of false negatives. And then with false positives, the risk is that if you think you have the infection when you actually don't, you may think you're immune to it when you're not. So then um, you may change your behaviors and become infected. As these tests become more common and as more people are told that they have these antibodies, what do you think will be the public health instructions that people get for governing their future behavior if they've tested positive? That's a good question. So right now, it seems that the public health message is don't change your behavior based on your antibody test results. Just so you know, I was antibody tested last week. I'm talking to you on Wednesday. I was tested last Wednesday in Chicago, where I live and where JAMA is based. And I haven't gotten the results yet, unfortunately, because I'd love to tell you. But I should know within a matter of days. I have thought about this a lot uh, based on my reporting and what I've been reading since then. And I'm not going to change my behavior based on the results. We don't know that a positive antibody test result means that I am immune or how long I'm immune or that I can't be potentially infectious. Right now, I don't think the antibody test would tell me enough for me to change my health behaviors, specifically about social distancing. That is a caution that I would want to put out to your listeners. I'm surprised that it's taking you so long to get the results of your test. I'm looking here at your article, and it's illustrated with a close-up picture of what looks like a plastic test unit with lines indicating the results, sort of like a pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. It it looks actually very much like a pregnancy test, but with different lettering on it. How come it takes so long to get the results? Yeah, I think that that picture is probably a lateral flow assay. The test that I had done is ELISA, and it's supposed to give I believe the results are supposed to be available within 72 hours for this test, but it's really at the beginning. And so it's taking longer for the labs to produce the results. And this was seen with the PCR test too. So I was told initially that it would take 72 hours, but then when I actually had the test done, I was told seven days and then I was told seven to 10 days. But the physician who ordered the test told me that this is something the process is going to get faster as as time goes on. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask about what it's like to be a journalist at a place like the American Medical Association and its journal during a period like this. When I read this article, which again is titled The Promise and Peril of Antibody Testing for COVID-19, I assumed it was written by an academic in the field. And then I was surprised to learn that you're actually, you're an editor at the publication. Obviously, you've made yourself quite the expert in this field in a very short period of time. During this period, have you had to exert yourself in an unusual way to develop expertise in a very quick way? I'm guessing that in the case of most articles you write, you might have more lead time in terms of publication. I think a lot of science writers and health writers tend to be 
generalists. So a lot of us can jump in to a lot of different topics, but I would say the difference is, as you mentioned, the time frame. So things were moving and things continue to move so incredibly quickly that once we decided we wanted to do this story, it's sort of like the clock is ticking to get it out as quickly as possible. But we have a lot of layers that we go through at JAMA. I do a lot of fact-checking. My editor then does fact-checking. The story then goes through a physician reviewer. And so there's a lot of layers that may not necessarily be present in more of a mainstream news outlet, like a newspaper. We can't get things out as quickly. And so there's a certain amount of pressure and stress that I felt when writing the story because the longer it takes to publish it, the more things are changing on a daily basis. So then you constantly have to be updating it at every phase. Every time it comes back to me, I'm checking to see if anything's changed in the meantime while it was out of my hands. In terms of the learning curve, I think it's just another interesting science story, and it's you know another day in the life of a science journalist. Jennifer Abbasi, thank you so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. For listeners who want to read her latest article, it's called The Promise and Peril of Antibody Testing for COVID-19, and it's available on the JAMA website. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.